This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. everybody for joining me today on the world of UX. A special welcome to those of you that are listening for the first time. We are in anniversary month and we started off with a special session last week where I was interviewed as if I was a guest on my own show. Had an absolute ball talking with Tolu Garcia. I think she did a fantastic job and presented some great Topics. I really love her creativity. I think she's a fantastic interviewer. Uh, so uh, thanks again, Tolu. I'm sure she's, she's going to hear this. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to do that. And we are lining up other people to be on the show for the anniversary month. But we got to wait another week for that. I do, however, have what, when I thought about it, I consider this to be a special topic that I'm going to cover today because what I'm going to be talking about today, it's funny how long I've been talking about the topic I'm going to cover today, but not necessarily when I'm delivering talks. And I definitely have not given the topic I'm going to cover today a lot of coverage on any one of the shows over the course of these two years. I've never dedicated a lot of time to this. And it hit me today is the day while we get everybody lined up and we start to bring folks on and we'll just be hodgepodge it folks. We'll just be like talking about things from the hip. And a lot of time that's great to just have some good organic conversation. But the topic I'm covering today, I have been saying for years, I first noticed it and started talking about it in 2012. I talked about UX being under siege. No, I'm, I'm not talking about that today. But, but what I am going to talk about is directly tied to that. Again, so I've mentioned it, just not in a broad sense. And you know what we do on this show. You know, a lot of people out there are talking about the work that we do as UXers. They, when you go to the conferences, they're talking about different things that they did. Some people get up there and they just walk you through a case study and I've heard people talk about how that's all that they see sometimes when they go to some of these these talks and these conferences and I mean (laughs) you can see somebody's case study anytime that's that's not a talk Uh, but at any rate I don't want to go down that that rabbit hole we talk about on this show the stuff that other people don't want to we talk about topics that and I hear about it all the time folks are like thank you for covering that. Nobody ever covered that. Thank you for talking about that. We didn't learn about that when I went through my my degree program or my boot camp or whatever. I mean, th- there are things that are not being covered and people are running into them on a regular basis and it leaves people confused. When they run into certain things, they don't know how to respond. And, and so, These types of things have to be covered. The things that we cover, that's why the show was called The World of UX. That's why we have our partner operation, UX Uncensored. And and UX Uncensored basically means that there are no holds barred. There are no topics that we will not cover. We will talk about any and everything. And one of the reasons why is so people can be equipped, so that people can be empowered. It is critically important. So what I'm going to talk about today, I've been bringing attention to these things for about a decade now. It has evolved. My understanding has has evolved. The way I've approached these things have evolved. And the three personas or the types that I'm going to talk about today are things that, of course, they have evolved. I used to just talk about two 
I used to just talk about posers and retrofits, but what we're going to talk about today, folks, is posers, retrofits, and upstarts. We want to share what these things are, why it's important to understand them in UX. We need to define them. I need to provide you examples so you know what each one of them is. How do they look when you see them? What What is it that that happens that represents these three things? And what's the fallout? What, why is it a problem? And what happens when posers, retrofits, and upstarts are operating in UX? What impact does it have upon the discipline? What impact does it have upon you? What impact does it have upon me? So let's start this little journey, if you will. Again, I've been talking about UX being under siege for about 10 years now. That's when I first started noticing it. I didn't know what was contributing to it at the time. I just know, some of you, you know my background. I actually transitioned into UX full-time coming from operating as an instructional designer. You, you don't even hardly hear that that anymore today. You don't see a lot of instructional designers, or if you do, what those people are expected to do on their job is <laughs> it's, it's not the same representation. It's, it's quite different than it used to be because what I talk about that I'm seeing and have been seeing in UX, I saw it when I was an instructional designer. Instructional designer was, a, was an established science. It really, you may know it under another title, trainer. A lot of trainers didn't just deliver training, whether it was instructor-led training, whether it was computer-based or web-based training, whatever kind of training it was. There was a time when the people who did the training actually knew how to structure. They knew the science of structuring the training in a way that optimized the learnability, the learning experience, if you will. And they knew what to, to do, what the approach was. That's how I learned to do a task analysis when I was an instructional designer. And I brought that into, into the UX side with me because I recognized the, the value of that. That's just a little, a little side note. But what I noticed when I was an instructional designer was that there was a shift when technology came into play. I mean, there was no web-based training in 1994. Web-based training came along around somewhere between 1995 and 2000. So now if you're an instructional designer and you recognize that people can be trained over the internet or people can be trained just by sending them a CD with a course embedded in the CD, that's the CBT or the computer-based training. When those things started to come about, there were a lot of people in, in instructional design that weren't ready for the technology. They didn't know how to do certain things. And, and, and it really, this, this innovation in learning that came about, it was causing some disruption. Now, when that disruption came about, it was ironic that at the same time that the disruption came about, the internet just changed everything, folks. When this disruption came about, organizations actually never really did have a strong understanding of instructional design. They didn't understand what the instructional designers were doing. They felt that they were paying too much for the instructional designers. It, 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 when you go down the list of what was happening, because I don't want to spend too much time there today, when you go down the list of what was going on, in the world of instructional design, long story short, it actually happened to be the same exact thing that's happening in UX today. Because what happened over time was when you think about the fact that, that organizations, leadership didn't understand what they needed to understand about instructional design. And, and eventually the market started getting flooded with unqualified people who didn't understand the science of instructional design and people started just putting together a, a, a PowerPoint presentation and just had somebody read off of them. People who didn't understand, who didn't do a task analysis, who didn't do a needs analysis. They didn't go through the normal 
modes of operation, the, the steps, the processes, if you will, because we had a design process then. It was called Addy. <laughs> it was called Addy. It was analyzed, designed, developed, implement, and evaluate. That's what Addy stands for. And you were supposed to do those things to put together a course to help ensure that it was it had the highest instructional quality. Well, when these unqualified people came along and started flooding, companies started flooding their their learning operations and corporations with with these folks that were just really occupying the space, wanted to do training, didn't understand anything, flood the market with these people. They were able to save a lot of money, but it also, it took place the, the quality of the education, the learning experience, the quality of it was sacrificed. So you had people who were coming in, taking over the instructional designer jobs. They weren't qualified. They didn't respect the discipline. They didn't understand the discipline. They didn't care. They wanted to get the money. They wanted to get the jobs. And hey, they were coming in and getting paid less. So the the instructional designers, the actual skilled ones were being displaced and folks didn't care. This was going on in the late 1990s, early 2000s. This is when I made my transition out. When I saw what was happening, I wasn't invested in instructional design, but I saw it. And I was also starting to fall in love with, I was doing UX, I had a, a freelance web design business that I was running in the evenings. I was learning on the job doing that and then doing UX, what we came to know later, know later as UX during the day job, but only on a part-time basis. I wasn't really embedded. I, w- I was learning through books. I was doing things from a from a self from a, a self-taught standpoint. There were no programs. I didn't know where to go to learn about it. And there weren't very many programs anyway that were available from a UX perspective. So I there was no really formal education was not readily available. And so I I still I transitioned into UX in 2005 full time. And then in 2012, so glad to have left instructional design because of what I saw and and the siege that instructional design was being subjected to. But in 2012, after operating in UX full time for seven years, I started to see the same exact thing. People who did not understand UX, people who wanted to get the, I mean, that the article started to come out about how this is a great position and you should try to get into this field. It's the next up and coming thing and sharing what the starting salaries were and people were seeing it and getting excited. The gold rush to UX had begun. And when the gold rush to UX began, I started to know companies didn't understand what UX really was. I didn't understand it as UX maturity level issues at the time. I learned that a few years later, but I came to know that that was the issue. People don't understand. They started realizing, hey, we need to have UX departments. We Let's stop paying the creative agencies to do all the UX work. Let's, we need to have UX people within our company. So they started structuring these UX departments, but they didn't know who to hire. And there was a shortage of skilled people people who were qualified to do the work. So they started throwing anybody into the positions. And I'm, and I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, isn't it amazing how history repeats itself and that the same exact thing that I saw happening in instructional design that was part of the reason that I left the discipline, that discipline, I should say, now it's happening over here too. And now I've got one master's degree, UX-related master's degree, I'm working on a second UX-related master's degree, and I got the second one, completed the second one in 2015. By now, I'm invested. I am just flat out in love with the discipline of user experience and, and saw all the terrible things that were happening. And I said, you know what? No, I am not going to abandon ship. I am not going to walk away. I am not going to, to just count everything that I've done as a loss and go and find another job. I love what I'm doing. 
I, I started, I became a professor. I got my first professor's job in 2015, right after I graduated. And I'm not like some of these other people. I was already a trainer for years. I already had one master's degree in UX and had actually been doing it for 20 years when I got my first full-time gig. So it's not like I'm one of these people who graduates and then they start teaching the very next week, which happens in a lot of boot camps in particular, notorious for bringing in people who just graduate and, and making them instructors. That's, that's the person doesn't have any experience. There, there's nothing to offer. But at any rate, in retrospect, looking back at it now, after observing what I'm going to talk to you tonight for 10 years, I'm going, this is, this is really crazy. And, and I began to think that it'd be great for the anniversary show to share some of the details, because again, some people have heard me mention posers, retrofits and upstarts. And I'm sure I've mentioned it a couple of times on a couple of episodes, but it's never received its own dedicated time. So we're going to write the ship concerning that, because I think this is something people need to understand, especially the way that we're going to break it down on tonight. So again, I've been bringing attention to this for about a decade now. Let's break it down. It's matured. It's ready to be shared. Let's get into it. These are three personas, types, if you will, three types of folks. There are many, but there are three in particular that are extremely dangerous, extremely counterproductive. We run into these three people all the time. Some people listening to this undoubtedly are one or more of the three. And I'm going to say this now. I'm going to repeat it again later, but I'm going to say it now. If you're guilty of any of the things I'm about to mention, please know all you have to do is stop being that. You can always renounce it. What I have found is that a lot of people, when you call them out on something, when you hold them accountable, guilty people are not quick to change their their mode of operation. They're not quick to say, you know what? Yep. That's me. You got me. The shoe fits. I need to write my ship. People are not quick to do that. They they tend to, I, I've actually come to find that a lot of the trolls that I've been talking about from time to time in recent episodes here on the World of UX actually belong to one of these three camps. And so when you call them out, they just try to find something to accuse you of. They're not accurate. They just try to deflect. They engage in mudslinging. And sharing of facts, eh, that's not, if that was on their radar, they wouldn't be posers, retrofits, or upstarts. (laughs) So at any rate, let's go ahead and break it down here. So we'll start with number one, of course, what is a poser? Well, a poser is a person, and, and these definitions all came from existing dictionaries, no slang definitions here. Like when people talk about a gatekeeper, they use uh, definitions that come from slang dictionaries or that come from some other weird arena and, and it doesn't even apply to what they're talking about. These are legitimate definitions that you can go on the internet and find in the Cambridge Dictionary or in Merriam-Webster or some other viable resource where the definition is legit. So we didn't make these up. These are legit. So, Definition number one, what is a poser again? It's a person who pretends or claims to be what he or she is not. One of the key operative words here is pretend. Uh, some of you, you, you're aware of my, my activity in social media, and I am becoming known for calling out the fallacies associated with, with imposter syndrome. And you notice that the word imposter means that the person is faking. Do you really feel like you're faking if you're one of the imposter syndrome folks or someone who subscribes to that? Or are you actually pretending? One of the reasons that a lot of people feel like they're imposters is because they actually are. Some people are just having self-doubt. They're having confidence issues. Those are normal. That doesn't mean you have quote-unquote imposter syndrome. But a poser is a person who pretends. That means to get back on track here, That means that this person is aware of the fact that they are not who they claim they are, and they have premeditated misrepresentation. 
that's what that is about. So a poser is a person that's basically pretending. They're pretending to be something they're not. Definition number two, an insincere person, a person who is operating in the in the position of a UXer, but they're not really a UXer. They're just saying that they are. It, it's a role, and they're acting. Definition number three, a person who affects some behavior, style, attitude, or other condition, often to, and here's the operative part, to impress or to influence. This is when you have, it's like, start getting to the examples, a person who claims they've been doing UX for years, I've seen that before. Person said, I've been doing UX for years now, and then they proceeded to tell some story, and the person was lying. They were pretending the entire time. The person said that they've been doing UX for years, and they had only literally been doing UX for a few weeks. And all you had to do to find this out was go and look at their profile. The person was lying. And they were doing it to try to promote a business that they started, but the person was a poser, a poser. Second example, a person who claims that they were a lead UXer in their first UX job. Isn't that interesting? You, folks, you have entry-level UXer, mid-level UXer, senior UXer, you have principal, you have lead uh, then, I mean, there, there, there are in all companies, they're, they're, they're not all set up the same way, but basically speaking, the, the hierarchy in UX departments, they, they have a, a certain step ladder aspect to them. And so lead is something that happens way down the line. It's something that a person can't get a lead UX position until they've been doing UX, not legitimately. I mean, even if your company does it, they shouldn't have done it until you were in the position for about 10 years or so. Uh, you can't be a lead UXer and it's your first UX job. So it's really, really sad that people will do that. But what, what happens is people are saying, they like saying that they're a lead UXer for the express purpose of impressing or influencing other people. That makes, by definition, that makes that individual a poser. And then here's another example. A person who is a developer, a visual designer, or say an art director, and they've been doing these jobs for like seven years. Okay, great, more power to you. But then these people decide that they want to get a UX job. And then when they get into the UX job, in order to qualify, they change their resume and they'll sprinkle UX or they'll sprinkle different UX buzzwords around their resume, all to misrepresent their past experience. Folks, that is a poser. And, and I was first introduced to this, first experienced it and witnessed it back when I had my first UX manager's job back in 2015. And in looking at the huge stack of resumes, I found that about 90% of people at that time trying to get a UX job, and this is the gold rush, people are trying to get one of these UX jobs, 90% of people will lie in order to get that UX job. And it's really strange. And so over the years, I have, wasn't in a manager's job again until recently, but I still made it a point to review people's portfolios uh, from time to time or look at people's profiles on LinkedIn and just talking to people here and there, just meeting people all over the world. And it stays about the same. There's still about 90% of people who are willing to misrepresent who they are to impress, to try to get a job or whatever the the this thing is that they're trying to accomplish. So the rank of the poser is ironically, I mean, it's just, it's amazing how many people feel that that is the way to go. So that's the poser. What's the fallout? The discipline gets oversimplified many times because of what these people are talking about and what they're doing, especially when leadership is exposed to these people. The discipline is grossly misrepresented by these same people and people who are influenced by these folks, by the posers are unknowingly inducted into what I like to call the cult of UX that a lot of people who are doing UX, they're not really doing UX. And so, but they talk as if they're doing UX. And if you try to convince them that they're not doing UX, they get pretty ornery. Uh, this is where trolling and things like that come in. Trolling is made up a lot of times of people who they know what the truth is, but they refuse to to submit to it. 
basically, they'd rather get uh, engage in emotional violence rather than just say, you know what? Yep, that's true. Uh, I need to come clean. I need to change. They're not going to do that. They're going to try to, they've already staked their claim and they want to maintain it even though they're misrepresenting who they are. Those are the posers of the day, folks. And again, dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. And there are a lot of posers out there, but there are a lot of retrofits and upstarts too. So let's touch on the next two. Definition of retrofit. First first definition, to adapt to a new purpose or need. Now that is a general definition. But the operative term here, the key term to understand is that of adaptation. That's what a retrofit is. So let me share a second definition, and this will make it clear. Only two definitions for this one. Retrofitting has to do with taking something or someone fit for use elsewhere and then applying it to something that it wasn't actually made for or compatible with. That's what a retrofit is. So what's an example? The examples will help folks to understand. Let's say that there's a company who starts a UX department. Someone convinced them we need UX. Okay, somebody says, great. Okay, let's go ahead and get it started. I, I know of this happening in several places, and I'm sure a lot of you do as well. But what happens a lot of time is instead of hiring someone, even though some do, who's actually qualified to run a UX team, many companies in that case where the UX team sort of comes out of nowhere, they just hire somebody they think that's already on the team, somebody who's already at the company that they just like to see in that role. The person is not necessarily qualified to, to run a UX department. They're not qualified to evaluate UX, <laughs> UX talent. So that means that the wrong people, you're going to end up not only with a retrofit leader, in that case, but you're going to end up with two, three, four, five, six, or seven people who are all retrofits. And mind you, none of these people are confident. All of these people are scared to death. They just had a phenomenal opportunity drop in their lap. I'm happy for you if that happened, but it still doesn't make you qualified. And it surely isn't going to do anything about that lack of confidence that those people have and the fallout, which I'll talk about in a moment, that comes from that lack of confidence. But at any rate, uh, so instead of hiring somebody to run and populate the department, some of these folks, they took people who were interested in UX and have them fill out the team, or they take a person, they do hire a person who is skilled at UX, and they have them run the team. But I've seen instances where those people even turn around and just fill the department with retrofits. Now, here's the fallout that comes out of that. These people, a lot of times, if you're if you're excited about the position, that's great. But you have a responsibility if you're in that role. You can't just do the job. You you are a uh, an ambassador of the discipline, whether you like it or not. You're an ambassador of the discipline, and you need to represent the discipline properly. Now, all teams in the scenarios I gave. These people had minimal appreciation for the discipline. Maybe the person in charge did in the case where they actually hired a, a UXer to run the team. And I was, I've been on a team like that before. I've seen other companies where there were other teams. And there was other instances where I knew of one team that globally there was 200 people on the entire UX team. But the person in charge was not a UXer. They read a couple of articles. But that, but that was it. That is a recipe for disaster, folks. Both scenarios are when you fill your department with retrofits, there are going to be a ton of problems, one of which could be that that UX team eventually gets shut down because the team and the discipline are not being represented or they're not representing the discipline the way that they should. So additional fallout. All teams have folks given to the or teams like this. They're given to the fake it till you make it mindset. So when you get people who who, fall, who are have that fake it till you make it mindset, these people are not going to represent the discipline properly. Teams like this, they're replete with people who harbor hostility. I have seen real seniors, real seasoned UX practitioners come into teams like this, and the people who were retrofits actually see those people. They don't see them as somebody who can help them grow. Very few. I've seen a few retrofits succeed. I have. But for the most part, no, it's dangerous. 
they usually see the seasoned UX professionals as threats. They see them as somebody who's going to take away their livelihood from them. They don't see them, and you should see them as somebody that will help you grow. And people like me who've been in positions like that, hey, let's help the team grow. Let's help the team get better. That's what we want to do. Instead, you, you, you're honest, you're transparent, you tell people about what's happening, you tell people about what they need to do, and the hostility is just rampant. So these teams, next point about the fallout, is their environments become toxic. And on average, the today, the average UX team environment is hostile. Because you know what else happens, and I'm going to interject one that I didn't list down here to share with you today. I've seen people, they hire people, they grow too fast, they put people into positions way too fast, they're not qualified, but the whole team, 20, 30, 40 people, and 35 of them are unqualified, well, somebody's got to be the lead, somebody's got to be the senior, so they try to take the best of the bunch instead of bringing in a senior from outside. The team just is grossly dysfunctional, folks. It doesn't work like that. That's not how healthy UX departments are built. That's not how they are are nurtured. That's not how they are managed, folks. And so, end result, this group with the retrofits everywhere are doomed to a low or no UX maturity. They are going to have a lack of acumen required to properly demonstrate the value of UX. And eventually that team is going to suffer dramatically. And in some cases, the C-suite will just come in and just shut them down because they're just people that are taking up paychecks. They're not really accomplishing anything. So retrofits don't work. Then there is the upstart. Now, what is an upstart? Let's get you some definitions here. An upstart is one who... They, they, they just spring up suddenly. I talked about the, the, the retrofit and that there is an element there that has to do with fast growth. Uh, but a lot of that is where you have some overlap because upstarts are people who, you know, they, they been in UX for a year. Uh, I've seen people, they, they're in UX, UX for a year. They leave and go to another company. And then I'm, I see their profile on LinkedIn and six months later, they're promoted to lead. And they've only been doing UX for about a year and a half. That doesn't say much for the UX maturity level for that organization. It doesn't say much for the future of that group. It doesn't say anything for trying to overcome UX hiring dysfunction, which is also a huge problem today. When people are growing too fast, something is amiss. Something is grossly amiss. And it's ironic, and I've said this before, a person can be a senior or a lead at one company, but they will not be a senior or a lead at another company where there's a higher UX maturity level. Because in that company, they know what it takes to accomplish certain things. And then so people will come in and they'll they'll advertise, they'll they'll, they'll apply, I should say, to go to another company. Yeah, yeah, do they advertise? Yeah, they do. But they apply at another company and then they interview with that other company and they're not going to be valued. Or if they get in there, they end up crashing and burning because they've sold themselves. They've advertised themselves as one thing when they really aren't. But it's because at some point in time in their career, they have this upstart factor that came into play where they just moved too fast. Another definition is a person who has risen quickly. There's that word again. Uh, This is a definition to wealth or power, but seems to lack dignity or ability. So an upstart is a person who gets into a position before they're qualified. And and they just it seems like they they have all this influence. It seems like they're they're really an upstanding part of the UX community, but really they're not. Fast rising, no ability. Fast rising, no true dignity. They don't really know how to represent the discipline the way that it should be represented. And and I've seen a lot of people in either of these three, posers, retrofit, or upstarts, and they they get to a point where they don't respect the discipline, and so they they do buy into things that don't that don't make sense. They do 
make suggestions and recommendations about things that they should be warning people about. And that's because they have a little bit of an upstart in them. Folks, if you're not, if you have not been doing UX for seven, eight years, you're not a senior. If you have not been doing UX for 10 years, you're not a lead or a principal. If you, if you haven't been doing UX for more than two years, you shouldn't be a manager. It, it, it's just amazing. And I wish the discipline was more standard from organization to organization. But because UX maturity levels are so low in those environments, anything goes and problems just come out of that. But anyway, back to the definitions. Definition number three, a person, especially a young one, I didn't write it, somebody else did, who has suddenly come into power or an important position, and then here's the operative part, they take advantage of it in an unpleasant way. So you have people that they come into power and the power goes to their head. And then they start saying and doing all kinds of ridiculous things. And a lot of the upstarts that I've seen, and part part retrofit, part upstart on this one, they, they come into power, they rise too quickly, and these kind of people, they, they love playing the game where they want to show up somebody who's a real senior. That doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. One of the things I find really interesting when people try to show up or try to make senior UXers look bad, true seniors, is that they act as if you haven't accomplished anything. They act as if you haven't had any experience, as if you haven't seen certain things work and certain things not work. And and they they actually think that it actually is a, a, a reasonable thing to do to try to discredit people. And nobody should be trying to discredit anybody. I mean, facts are facts. The, the things I'm talking about today, these are just facts. Just make sure that you're in, in alignment with the facts. But to, to go and try to discredit people, to slander people, these things are common, folks, today in the U.S., and it's ridiculous that people would do it, but it's people who lack experience, who are trying to slander other people, misrepresenting what people say and do. The, the attacks recently on, on Don Norman, ridiculous things that somebody who has a fraction of the experience of Don Norman who really has not made a contribution equivalent to Don Norman. And then when they get into a conversation with Don Norman, they either take his words and twist them or they take a private conversation and then broadcast it for the world to see. Broadcasting of a private conversation is not an ethical thing to do. And folks shouldn't be doing that. But when you consider the fact that the name of the game is that somebody is just trying to make a name for themselves and trying to take the influence, knowing that they have influence in the U.S. community, knowing that they, they have power in the U.S. community, and then trying to take advantage of that voice that they have in an unpleasant way. Do you, do you hear the definition being applied now? That's the act of an upstart, folks. And, and I, for one, I can't respect it. Uh, neither should anybody else. Truth be told, we need to be careful how we, how we maneuver and navigate our influence and make sure that we do and say things that are representative of the discipline and that reflect ethics and integrity. When somebody doesn't, you got a poser, retrofit and upstart scenario. The thing is, if you don't recognize it, then you can be taken advantage of. And so, but back to upstart. What are examples? Of, of being an upstart today. Uh, folks who have little to no UX experience, but they promote themselves as mentors and influencers. Another example, folks with little to no UX experience, but they feel it's okay to present themselves as leaders simply because of where they worked. Folks, just because somebody worked at Google, just because somebody worked at Facebook, that doesn't mean that everything that comes out of their mouth, they're, they're not the goose that laid the golden egg, that everything that everybody says, the things that I say, the things that everybody says are subjected to critical thinking. And we have to make sure that we stop and, and subject the things that people say to critical thinking. Somebody is not the golden goose because of where they graduated. 
Somebody is not the golden goose because of where they worked. And for some reason, there's this hero worship element that has found its way into UX these days. And when I say that, I just did an homage to pioneers. There's a reason why those people are pioneers. There's a reason that we should recognize these people. And when you see Don Norman, when you see Susan Weinshank, when you see these people, the things that they say and do, are you going to pay attention? Yeah, you're going to pay attention, but you should still also be subjecting what you hear to critical thinking. What I'm talking about, when I talk about hero worship, it's more akin to like, it's like a, reminds me of something on the line of the way that people act when a celebrity comes into play. So if a celebrity, if a well-known celebrity walks in the room, people go gaga. And that's what I see happening in the UX today that is really detrimental to the discipline. When somebody says, hey, I work at Google, people go, oh, and all of a sudden, their receptors and their antennas, they turn them off just because the person said that they worked at Google or they worked at Facebook. Have you not had bad user experiences in using a Google or a Facebook product? Have you not had bad experiences with different organizations? Well, that lets you know that they don't get the whole thing right all the time. So if they don't get it right all the time, you know, should you be excited? Maybe, depends upon the scenario. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to take everything you say at face value just because of where you worked. We need to embrace critical thinking. It's a core element in succeeding at driving optimal user experiences. So if that is the case, and it is, then we need to maintain a critical thinking commitment at all times. Very important, folks, though. So let's make sure that we do that today. And example number three, educational resources that are not qualified to operate as educators. This is another aspect of uh, an example of people who start, they, they just educate because they can. And how long have they been doing UX? Three years? And now they've started an educational resource? Three years? Really? Do these people, and I know some people that, that, that haven't been doing UX very long and they take the time to educate, but when you go back and look at them, they do have an education that's backing them. They have been involved in maybe design for X amount of time. And in cases with people that I know, they always, everything I've ever seen them do, they always respect the discipline. So if you're respecting the discipline and you're respecting the pioneers and things like that, those kind of people, they may have been doing things for three, four or five years, but they carry themselves as if there's 10. They're not trying to make celebrities out of themselves. A lot of people are, the upstarts are trying to make celebrities out of themselves. And there's a lot of people doing it today. So what's the fallout? Many people develop an inaccurate perception of the discipline because of these people. Many people are misled. So it gets back to the cult of UX again a little bit. And then a lot of people that are part of the upstart crew, they're in the business of, or because of the things that the upstarts do, they're in the business of rebranding existing aspects of UX instead of respecting UX for what it is, understanding the foundational pillars associated with UX and respecting it and bringing it forward and then driving that acumen in conjunction with those factors. The upstarts are just trying to come up with something new or at least make it look like they're coming up with something new because they're trying to drive self-importance. So it's a very narcissistic kind of an approach, but it's really popular today. So this is something, again, I've never given this kind of time to the topics of posers, retrofits, and upstarts. Wanted to make sure to do this today. Wanted to make sure to cover this on today, folks. I mean, th there was a day that the people that who were posers, retrofits, and upstarts, also, they, they were just fabricating their way into UX. Another reason, sort of digressing here, another reason why it was important to cover this. Now these people are leading the UX teams. Now these people have the director's roles. They have the, the manager roles. And, and, and it's absolutely laughable that this has happened. And, and, and there's fallout here. Detrimental impact to UX maturity levels. Again, bringing that up again. Failure to operate properly as a UX team and department. 
A lot of times when this happens, they have the failure to demonstrate value. We mentioned this before, mention it again, to demonstrate value as a UX team. And if you don't demonstrate value, the, com- the company is going to respond accordingly. And so that's not a good thing. And then these companies are also doomed to operate when it comes to hiring. They're doomed to dysfunctional hiring practices. And they can't do any better than that because they simply don't have the right people in the right place. So, folks, these are, it's really sad. And, again, this is where the troll communities come from. They are replete with posers, retrofits, and upstarts. It's really, really sad and crazy stuff that I've been observing now for years and years and years. Uh, some 10 years now I've been observing it. And, and it's really sad. It's, it's something that's hurting us. And so what do we do? I mean, other disciplines deal with the same thing. People who operate in the discipline, successful disciplines, accounting, plumbing, landscaping, you, I mean, you name it. What is cosmetology? Whatever it is, that there is a, where there is success, there is always a sense of devotion to and appreciation for the discipline. Today, UX lacks this. On average, there are too many people in UX today that are so busy chasing the buck and all they care about is the buck, but they don't care what happens to the discipline while they're chasing the almighty dollar. You have to represent the discipline properly in order for the discipline to be healthy going forward, folks. Just really, really sad. And also, these same folks, posers, retrofits, and upstarts, they have another thing in common, too. They don't respect pioneers, and basically, they don't respect anybody with more experience than them. They don't want to hire people who have more experience than them. People don't want to work with with people that have more experience than them, and they're happy going out and slandering more experienced people because it's it's profitable. (laughs) It's profitable for them as individuals. So just really, really weird, really, really sad, but again, it's also very, very common today. So uh, just something that, again, we need to be aware of. I mean, ask yourself, how do you react when you interact with a more seasoned UX practitioner? Do you, are you threatened by us? Are you, do you see it as an opportunity to learn and grow? Well, what is it? Because uh, there's a lot of people today, as soon as they come across us, uh, I've seen people that they come across us and then they want to start to show how much they bring to the table. Really? You know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have <laughs> some little peeing contest here. It, it's, that's, folks, it's not, it's not what we do. That's not how things work. And, and it's not healthy. And it's not necessary. I mean, more a more seasoned UX practitioner knows what you bring to the table anyway. It's going to be painstakingly obvious. But when you feel the need to flex for absolutely no reason, then that's something that's going to stand out as well. Especially when I see people doing it and then when they flex, they're actually wrong. So you flexed, but you were inaccurate. Okay, way to go. So now it's it, it's clear. It's clear what's going on here. These types of things, it, it's really, and, and this happens not just in UX, this happens in a lot of other disciplines as well when people do this little tit for tat or they get into these little little somewhat competitive kinds of scenarios that all it does is somebody is trying to achieve a sense of of relevance and trying to establish a perception of stability because they're they're threatened by something they're they're made uneasy by something and these things ought not be which is why I stress the importance of EQ in, in UX because when you have more EQ you're not threatened and you don't need to do things like that and and you you don't feel like if there's somebody that knows more than you that your your professionalism is now threatened that's not a threat there's always somebody who knows more than us you know who cares be who you are continue to grow continue to be the best you can be and and that's that's really the only thing we want to see out of anybody the only thing we should expect so in wrapping up today what are the fixes well, number one, simply don't be guilty. <laughs> don't be a poser. Don't be a retrofit and don't be an upstart. Number two, if you have been guilty or if you are guilty today, just renounce it. Stop. 
If you're a poser, go and become legit. If you're a retrofit, go and become legit. Build your acumen. Get some training. Connect with somebody that's going to help grow you. Be the real deal. This is not a problem. If you're one of these things today, not, not a problem at all. If, if you're an upstart, pull back. <laughs> Stop trying to make yourself be a celebrity. Stop trying to make yourself relevant. Don't be like the guy that I saw who had been actually doing UX maybe for around a year and was fabricating his, his experience and his LinkedIn profile. The person was being was being excluded and kicked out of different UX uh, UX meetups and groups and such because of the plagiarism that was taking place. I met people who were talking to me and then going around and, and sharing my words as if they were theirs, things of that nature. Why would you need to do something like that? Does that really help you do the work? No, it, it doesn't. Does it really help to misrepresent who you are? No. It doesn't. So don't be an upstart today. Don't feel like you need to be recognized. Don't feel like you need to be important. You know, drop the narcissism because narcissism doesn't benefit anybody. So if you are, again, one of these things, renounce it. Turn your back on it. Open up your eyes. See who you are, who you've been, and then make a decision. Make a deliberate decision and effort to go the right way. And when you respect the discipline, number three, if you respect the discipline and respect those who've been practicing in the discipline longer than you, you'll stop being threatened by us. You'll stop doing things that are are detrimental. Some people out here even have trouble finding jobs because folks out here will throw other folks under the bus. It's that bad, folks. This is really happening out there today just because somebody wants to be relevant and wants to be seen as more than someone else. And the whole thing is absolutely, it's ridiculous, it's unethical, it should not be going on today. Respect the discipline. And yes, that includes how you represent other people. Respect the discipline. And the respect for the discipline will help vault all of us forward when we do that. So, Finally did it, folks. Here's the coverage on posers, retrofits, and upstarts. Let's make sure that we're embracing these definitions. Let's make sure, again, that you're not one of the guilty parties. And let's take the discipline forward. We all benefit. It's worth it. And I hope that folks will join me in this effort. That is all the time we have for today, folks. Again, celebrating our second anniversary We will have guests. We should have guests next week. I hope everybody's able to make it. The people are busy, but we'll do everything we can to bring the guests on so we can just have some nice little uh, coffee house discussion and talk about UX and share thoughts with other folks, other leaders in the discipline around the world. Uh, Love to hear what they have to say to everybody. And I'm looking forward to the dialogue. But until next time, time to sign off now. This is the host of the world of UX, Darren Hood. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.